Quote, the approximately 1.7 million square foot complex built in phases between 1927 and 1970 was designed by architect George C. Nimmons in the Art Deco style. The 10 to 15 story structure historically operated as a distribution hub for Sears catalog products, although operations ceased in 1992. However, a Sears retail store still occupies a portion of the building. The property, which is now known as the Mail Order District, was designated a Los Angeles Historic Cultural Monument in 2004 and has been listed on the National Register of Historic Places since 2006. End quote from an article in Urbanized Los Angeles, October 2017. When my sister and I were kids, we would have a circuit on the weekend with my parents. It would typically start uh, from our home in, um, in Boyle Heights, and we would head to downtown Los Angeles to the Grand Central Market. And as I've talked about previously on, on the podcast, my mom had a very limited budget. And in those days, before it turned into this hub of hipsters, the Grand Central Market was the best place for deals when it came to fresh produce, breads, meats, you name it. Uh, they had it there, and my mom made it a point that every single time that we needed to stock up seriously, it was like going to Costco. But for us, it was a Grand Central Market, and, and I never begrudged that. It was always fun and exciting to go there. Uh, first, it was different than the mundane little streets and shops uh, in East Los Angeles. Uh, we, were, we were actually in the big city and we were doing shopping and there was always something interesting to see because downtown LA is always interesting. But also because now they have eateries from Thai to Exlut. But back then, it was primarily Mexican food and some of the best tacos in the city and if you could you know worked on my mom hard enough she eventually would acquiesce and she would buy you these amazing tacos with a coca-cola and it was just the best thing in the world to be there on a hot summer day with uh, your three tacos and your and your coca-cola just enjoying the the busyness of the city the cacophony of the place it was just a great memory and after that, we would all pack, you know, and get in the car and head towards Boyle Heights uh, off of Soto Street and go check out the old Sears building. And for us, it was just window shopping, but it was on our way back home. And I remember always enjoying going into that building because it just felt ancient to me. I've always enjoyed film noir type of stuff, uh, things from the 1920s, 1930s, like that kind of style. Think of Gotham City, think of the, the Chicago, think of Detroit. You got to think of those buildings. Um, yeah, the, like I said, Gotham City, the way Tim Burton kind of imagined it in the, in the uh, original Batman film. But then give it the wear and tear that you would see in a movie like uh, The Usual Suspects in San Pedro with buildings that have been rained on for a long time and so there's rust on a, a lot of the metal there's been the grime of traffic who, that has been caked onto the onto the building sides and they just kind of rest there permanently there's a certain smell uh, to areas like that which is not attractive but to me it triggers memories of my youth so it's it's not a bad thing uh, close to to this area is the huge LA River and so it's got you got to cross over this old bridge to get to it if you've ever seen the mask and th that point in that movie where 
the Ipkisk guy throws the map off of uh, off of the bridge. Well, that's that area that you know that they're describing there. I think, and at me if if I got that incorrectly, but it's just that old noir grimy type of feeling and I loved it that was Los Angeles for me that was part or at least part of the Los Angeles that I still remember fondly what I didn't know is that it wasn't a relatively safe area uh, for me but you know we're there with my parents and and, and we're enjoying window shopping but uh, it, it wasn't really the best place to be and it's also a very heavily trafficked uh, spot of LA after that building we would go across the street and do a real shopping for clothes. Again, talking about the budget, my mom didn't have a lot, so she made the most uh, with what she had. And that meant going to the desert industry stores, uh, which I always called desert industries for some dumb reason. But it was this building across the way from the uh, Sears uh, Tower there. Uh, and it was huge. A thrift store, and that is where the majority of our outer clothes came. Obviously, socks, uh, shoes, underwear, that came from the store. But from the moment that we arrived to the U in the U.S. to the moment that I graduated high school uh, at 17, for all of those years, the majority of the clothes that I wore were hand-me-downs. We shopped at that thrift store, and that's where all of our sweaters would come from. For me, a lot of my pants... Uh, that's why I know for a fact that I wasn't, you know, the, the most fashionable guy, guy in high school. Something that I would later go on to change when I had the opportunity to buy my own clothes is that I was wearing some other kid's pants or some other kid's shirt with the imperfections that typically would come from some of those things. And to be honest with you, I, I didn't really care. I was happy to be clothed. And some of the things that we would find were actually pretty good name brand stuff. And so... I nobody at school would know unless I told them and I wasn't going to tell so as far as everybody was concerned I was just another kid who was you know uh, who was trying to keep up with everybody else they just never knew that it was a hand-me-down um, but I always remember coming out and looking at that that old building and thinking just how cool it would have been to have been a kid in LA in the 1920s, in the 1930s, when the city, or at least that part of the city, was hip and it was happening, um, and fat and men and women dressed differently. What can I say? I'm a weirdo. I, I I would make a fantastic time traveler because there's so many different cool times when I would like to implant myself and then just kind of check out, you know, what the culture was like uh, with the knowledge of what I know now. But that's beside the point. We would then get on the road and then head back home and either pick up something to eat along the way or, um, you know, my mom was already planning what the meal was going to be for the evening. On one of these occasions, my father was always in the driver's side. We were heading, I think, north on Soto Street. Again, a rougher part of town. And out of nowhere, uh, you see the lights come on behind us and all of a sudden we all realize that it's the police and that they're pulling us over very quickly my mom gets apprehensive tells us kids to sh shut it and that and then I asked my dad well what did you do or, or what happened and he says nothing I'm going the speed limit I haven't 
I've been mindful of the lights. I don't know what's going on. We would have to assume maybe uh, he asked, is our, our plates up to date? This is all going on in Spanish. And of course, she says yes. And then they go back and forth about, you know, are you accusing me of something and all that same bullshit. But eventually my dad does find a, a safe place and pulls over. And in a, in a moment with us three kids in the car, myself and my two sisters, my mom on the passenger side, my dad on driver's side, uh, the police officer comes over, LAPD, taps, uh, you know, taps at my dad to roll down his window, which of course he has to do manually, uh, and asks for a driver's, and, a driver's license and registration uh, and proof of insurance. Actually, did he ask for proof of insurance? I don't know if this happened before the law changed. Anyways, asked for his paperwork, which my dad gives uh, to the guy. And then my dad makes the mistake of asking, what did I do? In very broken English. And the police officer takes offense to it and says something along the lines to my dad of, don't, I'll, I'll tell you what you did wrong when I'm ready to tell you what, what you did wrong. For right now, you just need to shut up. My dad is an extreme, was an extremely macho type of dude and a former police officer himself. Any sign of disrespect to my father was just, my dad didn't give a fuck. And he didn't give a shit that it was a police officer. My dad's sense of masculinity was so heightened that there was no way that anybody was going to tell him what to do or speak to him that way. And never mind in front of his wife and his children in the back. So my dad in Spanish mouthed off. I can't tell you what it is that he said, but it was bad enough to the for the police officer to ask him to step out of the car. Now at this point, all of us kids in the back seat, we're, we, we began to really get worried because there's this fear that your dad's gonna get hauled off uh, to some, uh, somewhere. Now my mom knew how to drive, but she wasn't very comfortable. And also now what the fuck happens if he, he gets pulled away? Sure enough, my dad gets out of the car very carefully, and just a lot of it is mumbled. I was in the backseat of the car with the windows up, so I couldn't hear all of it. But my dad is making it known that he doesn't appreciate the way that this guy's talking to him, but he's also doing it with, with English that's hard to understand, and there's this babble moment going on between these two men. And out of nowhere, all of a sudden, I realize, I see that my dad is on his knees and the, the, the police officers are trying to figure out what they're going to do with him. Luckily enough, I think my dad just kept his mouth shut, everything checked out with the car, they asked him a question and he was allowed to get back into the vehicle and drive away. And along, the, it was a very quiet ride home until he broke his silence about with us 10 minutes away from, from the house and just talked about how emasculated he felt by these two. There were two officers at the moment, but he had exchanged really with just the one and how wrong it was for these assholes to do that to him, that he had done nothing wrong, that he they never gave him a real answer. Now he's got this stupid ticket that I never figured out what it was for and that they were doing to the, that this was not the first time they had done that to him. And he went on to tell my mom about a ride back that he had from LAX where he was working to home and how he had had another altercation with with the police. Again, this is LAPD in the 1980s. Fast forward to several months later and we were at 
my mom's work in near the farmer's market in off Fairfax in LA. Again, this is more on the west side, so more of the ritzier part of town. And we were waiting for my mom to get off work to get picked up and bring and bring her back. And my dad and my sisters and I were playing at a park uh, near uh, near her, and we were just throwing the frisbee around. Um, and then some kids were playing with a ball, white kids. And these fuckers just kept on somehow just messing around with one of my one of my sisters. They kept on talking shit. They kept on, you know, telling her things, and to, uh, to to the point that my dad had it and went over to them and again in broken English told them what is going on. Leave my daughter alone, and they started to mouth off, and I knew that they were making fun of my dad's English. Here's the thing, though. Back then, I was very meek. I was well. We were newer to the country. I didn't know the rules. Um, to some degree, I was deferential to anybody who was from this place, and I didn't want to cause and stir any trouble. And so I was pissed off that my dad was mouthing off to these kids. He's like, why can't you just let it go? Why is it so important? But again, my dad had a chip on his shoulder, or I perceived it to be a chip on his shoulder. And he took their ball away and said, no, you know what? I've had it. You know, you guys are, are coming around my daughter. You guys are messing around with her, her, with her. So I'm going to take the ball and I'm going to hold on to it. Which at that point, the kids started mouthing off even worse and saying, well, we're going to call the police. And my dad started saying, yep, call them. Call them. I have nothing to hide. I have nothing to worry. You guys are the ones that are in the wrong here. So if you need to call them, by all means, go ahead and do so. And at that point, my anxiety just shot through the roof. And I started pleading with my father of why are you doing this? Why are you calling the authorities, or why would you let them call the authorities? This is not going to end good for anybody. I don't want them taking them away from you. Um, you know, and as I say that, I realize that I haven't given you guys the background of why I was so anxious about my dad being away. I'll, I'll tell you guys about that on a different day. But I just had this fear that my dad was going to be gone from me. And so I kept on pleading with him, can you just stop? Can you just give him that, back the ball? And my dad kept on telling me, this is wrong. This is not okay for them to do this. I have nothing to hide. Let them call the police and I will handle it. Eventually, it shaped out. I think one of the boys apologized. Or my dad just felt that it had gone far enough. And he threw the ball, you know, kicked the ball away. And they left and, and, and we left. And, and, and that was it for that day. <laughs> The reason why I bring all this up is because I was talking to my wife the other day in the car. Now, as some of you all know, I married a white girl. Uh, and there has been a rash lately, or it seems like that there's been, you know, a bunch of white folk, especially white women, who have gotten themselves into trouble over calling the police on people of color. If there's a small altercation, if there's some a perceived uh, infraction people seem to be getting on the line very quickly to the police to handle the situation. And because we live in the times that we live in, we have all of these recording devices that can now blast you to the world and show, you know, th th these interactions to not just your friends, but you're talking now to 
millions of people if it gets viral enough. And so I was talking to her about the concept of calling the police and at what point would she be at a breaking point where she felt like she had to. And also how I would handle, you know, for instance, if for whatever reason somebody recorded my wife calling the police on, on a matter and knowing her, knowing her, knowing her, um, where she comes at, you know, comes, you know, she's, she's, she's not somebody that is worried uh, about the little things. She doesn't give a shit if you, you know, there's kids selling water outside of somewhere or if kids are being boisterous or if people are trying to have a fucking barbecue at a park. She doesn't give a shit about that. It really, the only time that I, that she says so she, uh, she would, cons- she would think of calling is if somebody was threatening physical harm at her or was actually <laughs> hurting her. Outside of that, she doesn't feel the need to call the police. And again, we talked about how I might handle her ever getting caught on camera if she ever had to do that because at the end of the day I will support my wife whatever whatever flack there is of that I'm willing to take it because I know what's in my wife's heart I know where she's coming from and I got her back I will always have her back that's my duty uh, that's how much I love her and that's how much I understand her to be, is that, of course, she's going to get the benefit of the doubt. But then they let the question of, when would I call the police? Because I'll be honest with you guys, I have had some really good interactions with police officers uh, to the point where they have left me, they have let me off of things that I probably should have gotten really in big trouble for. But I've also had really bad interactions with them to the point where, I felt that they were, well, that they were targeting me, and not from the standpoint of me as a Hugo, but me as a brown person. That, and I'll give you an example, and I've talked about this before on the podcast. I used to work in West LA off of Rodeo Drive at this boutique tech company. Um, and I would get off of work at 4, 4.30, and if you know L.A., you know how densely packed the streets are at come quitting time. And so instead of taking the main thoroughways, I would go through the side streets uh, just to, if any, I wasn't going to go anywhere faster, but just to break up the monotony of the drive, of the stop and go and the stop and go that you usually get, you know, off of Wilshire or of, Wilshire or of La Cienega or of those major streets where you just never fucking move or it takes you forever to move. And so I took side street. And... Again, I was 20-something years old, cute as a button, very thin, uh, driving a 300ZX with the T-tops off, and it's hot, it's hot and it's summer, and so I would take off my shirt and, and drive down the street to try to get some sun uh, on my way to work, and I had uh, my knees on car with the two mufflers, and unfortunately, since I gotten used, I bought it used, there were holes on the mufflers, and so it made it so that it sounded a heck of a lot louder than it actually was. It wasn't a modification. It was just that the mufflers were rusted. But it would make the car roar. And I happened to be driving down a side street, and I, 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 I was moving forward. I see a police cruiser that was right behind me, and I'm like, okay, well, now I know the brown, you know, the brown person's guide to not getting in trouble is 
follow the rules, make sure that you stop your three seconds at the stop, make sure that you're putting in your blinkers if you're going to be moving left or you're going to be moving right. And overall, look casual, but not look like you're trying to be casual. It's one of those things. Like if you, if you generally follow those rules, you're going to be left alone. But sure, out of nowhere, I see the lights going off and I'm getting pulled over. Like, well, what the fuck? I stopped where I needed to stop. I'm following everything that I need to do. Like, what the, what's the big deal? Uh, you know, at that point, I go into my automatic because, sorry, dudes, but I, I've been pulled over way too many times where I know my hands got to be at the right place. I know I'm going to need to be showing my drivers my registration proof of insurance. So I, I know kind of where I need to fish for it and where to go to. But... I want to know what did I do wrong because I think I did it correctly. And so sure enough, the police officer woman comes over and she's like, well, you know why I pulled you over? I said, no, interested to know why. And she said, well, it's because you don't have a license plate in the front of your car. I'm like, wait, wait a second, though. You were coming from behind me. You've been behind me this entire time. She got pissed off about that. And she goes, what are you trying to say? I'm like, well, how would you know that I don't have a license plate in the front of the car? You've been behind me the entire time. She goes, you know, you need to, sh you need, you need to shut it, something along those lines. You need to shut it. You're getting the ticket. You don't have one. You need, it's a fix-it ticket, so I'm doing you a favor, which, by the way, a fix-it ticket is not as simple as just driving up, you know, going up to the uh, pol you know, police station and saying, hey, look, I took care of it, and they're going to let you off. It's going to cost you money. And mind you, I'm in my early 20s. 50 bucks, $60, whatever it is, that's a big chunk of my uh, weekly paycheck just going out the window. So for her to say that she's doing me a fucking favor, I'm like, thanks, homie, but that, it doesn't help me any. Anyways, I'm like, that's bullshit. I didn't say that out loud. I know better. But I certainly felt it. So, you know, and, and, and it's also just the look. It's the way that somebody looks at you with disdain. And you might think you're just reading too much into it. But unless you've seen that look several times over in your life, you don't know. Now, in the last, I haven't really had an encounter with a police officer in, in that sense in the last 10 years. Part of it is the fact that now, whenever I'm usually out and about, I'm typically well-dressed, or at least, you know, in business clothes. Or I'll be towing kids in the back seat. Or I'll have a white girl right next to me. And we joke about that, but I know she's gotten me out of at least one ticket. And, and, and like I said, in my small town, uh, the police department is actually very, very good. Or at least my interactions have been very good with the police department. They have been very friendly. They have been very cautious, I mean, uh, courteous. Um, now, I've called them on a few occasions to handle a bear, for instance, that would be in my neighborhood. Uh, or if I see potholes going around or if there's a pop, maybe a bobcat moving around the, the houses. So we are very Mayberry here. This isn't the LAPD. Anyways, in that situation, you just know that this person doesn't like you being in that neighborhood. You're getting this ticket in trumped up charges for us for us I'm concerned and also that this isn't the last time that's ever going to happen and so I too have my apprehension about calling the police and it's not because and I have that apprehension now not so much because I, I'm, I'm, I don't think that they're 
not going to be the, be there to help, but because I have a feeling that they won't that I won't get the benefit of the doubt, even if I'm the person that's calling them. I feel that I always have the burden of proof, even if I have done nothing wrong. And it comes from those earlier interactions as a kid where I saw them demean my father that way. Um, that even though I don't have his macho sense, that I understand that sometimes you got to do what's right, even if it's going to cost you. And if somebody's being a dick, you got to call them on it. It's not a macho thing. It's, um, this is wrong. I've stopped being meek. I stopped being meek a long time ago. In that sense, I took the lessons from my father and I've incorporated it into, I, into who I am. I have this sense of doing the right thing even if it costs you something. I will speak out when other people said you should shut the fuck up. There was a case at an immigration office where uh, I had to handle some paperwork. As some of you guys know, I'm a naturalized citizen. And, and I had to handle some paperwork uh, at this office. And you get to it, and there's a long line of people. And in this particular uh, place, the preponderance of the people there are immigrants, but they're not Latinos. They, most of them are Asian. But it's the one closest to me, so it's the one that I'm assigned to. And there's a security guard. A security guard, not a police officer, not a customs person, not an ICE, it's just a security guard. And not to knock that profession, but he's not a police officer. He's not, he doesn't have certain authorities, I think. Anyways, the, the Asian people that are, you know, going up there, some of them speak English just fine, but others have very broken, a very broken language and their communication is, is limited a few words and maybe there's about four or five of these folks in front of me and I hear how curt the security officers being with them like he's heard these questions a thousand times over and he's upset that he has to keep on answering them and so as we're moving forward we're moving forward now mind you he is Literally, the gatekeeper. He would prevent you from going in if you don't have the right paperwork or if you don't have the right um, ID, whatever it is. And everybody that hears this story says, why just can't you just shut up? It's not your business. But the fact that this guy was taking it out on other immigrants, that he was being a dick to them just because he could, because he was eventually going to let them in, it's just that he didn't like that these people couldn't speak the language, so he was going to make it a point to make it as difficult as possible. To the point of getting almost in their face, and, and, and not yelling, but making it very well known that he was not appreciative of them. So what does Hugo do? Tell him, like, hey, guy, can you just take it easy? Oh, fuck. He's like, you just wait. I'll get to you when I get to you. And I'm like, no, I'm sorry. You know, we're, we're not going to, we're going to handle this now. And if we need to call a supervisor, let's go ahead and call somebody. And it's like, I'm not dealing with you right now. I said, well, I'm dealing with you. Because you're being, you've not only been rude to myself, but you have been rude to at least two or three people ahead of me. And that's not okay. So either you need to change your tone or you need to find something else to do. Well, I'm going to call somebody. I'm like, by all means, give them a call. Let's address it right now. So 
he's like, oh, well, we'll just wait with it. And he, he let the people through just kind of to, to keep the line moving along and also because we were causing a scene. And eventually I got to, to him I'm like, dude, listen, I'm sorry that, you, that you're here and you don't want to do this. But that ain't what you're doing is not right. He mouthed off a couple of different you know, things, but he let me go on through. Again, anybody that I tell that story to, they said, well, just shut the fuck up. It's not your problem. But see, to me, it is. Because if I don't say something, nobody else will. And I don't have this complex of like, I'm anybody's savior. No, it's just that, what about for him? I, I just take it from that standpoint of like, what if he is having a bad day? What if he doesn't mean to be rude? And sometimes we all do that. Where we're acting out out of almost instinct. And it's good for on occasion for somebody to just say, hey, Take a chill pill, right? Back to my wife. <laughs> Back to her. Again, she is a heck of a lot more pragmatic than I am. By all means, a, a lot brighter woman. And she has a very good sense of character. In her lifetime, I'll tell you how many times that she has had to call the police on anybody. Zero. She's never done it. Um, because, again, she kind of sees things, she gives things the proper weight and realizes that some things can be handled amongst people and unless things get real physical or, or threatening, there, there is no point to that. And we've lived good enough lives where we really haven't had to worry about a lot of that. How many times have I had to call the police? Um, a few. Again, bears and maybe a, a neighbor that's a little bit too loud. But as far as being out and about and having a need to call the police to handle a matter, zero. Have I had good interactions with police officers? Most definitely. And in my small town, like I said, I love our police department. I think that they're terrific people. I think we just need to realize that officers are not perfect people. They make mistakes. They have a tough job wholeheartedly. But that we need, that we should be able to call infractions, abuses of uh, power, that we need to be, as a society, be able to call those out and say, this isn't right. This isn't okay. That People are getting hurt. Even bad people are getting hurt, are getting killed, are being maimed because we do not have, because some police officers take it to the nth degree and, and act and abuse the power that we as a society has entrusted onto them. I've heard many different ideas on policing and I, and I am by all means an expert and I don't mean to piss a lot of people off. All I'm saying is that there's a reason why some of us have a chip on their shoulder more than others. Because we have had to live with the threat of what happens when a police officer comes to you. You never know what you're going to get. Eight times out of ten, it'll be perfect. But you need only two times for it to go wrong so that you end up in a really bad spot. And... Those are tough odds because, you, you know, again, they're on your side. But when they don't, but when it goes bad, fuck. So that's all I wanted to 
say today is the fact that we need to be more mindful about policing our police and that there's a reason why there is lack of trust. But we can also, through talking and giving credit where credit is due, we can bridge the gap. Peace.